What would you like to do if money were no object? Wealth is a product of the mind. No amount of money you ever achieve will make you wealthy. Now is the time to take risk. Winners don't make excuses when the other side plays the game. Failure is just there to point you in a different direction. You're listening to the Inlight Podcast with your host, Max Starr. Welcome, everybody, to the Inlight Podcast. My name is Max. Joining me today is Colin and John from the Inlight team. Today, we're going to talk about this week's blog post, Value Investing. This was written by John. It is along the lines of his philosophy of investing from a value standpoint, but we are doing this podcast to dive a little bit deeper into this conversation. So John, if you want to bring up what your view, what, what is value investing to you? Just lay that out there to set the stage. Yeah, sure. So value, I mean, traditionally value investing has been about buying like a dollar for a quarter. So like in a classic, like Graham and Dodd or Buffett sense, it's, and looking for something that's, that's, that's undervalued versus the market. So the market gives you a price and you've got your view of intrinsic value. And if something is trading for so something lower than what your intrinsic value is, that's a value, right? Or if something is trading higher than your intrinsic value, you could short it as a value on the other side. So typically it's been all about numbers and just thinking about, about just you know, the valuation piece of it. Um, and there's been kind of a flow between growth and value. And I think up until the current times here where things have gotten quite beat up, people have been all about growth. So that there's been kind of a dismissal of value because it just hasn't been a lot of things that are, you know, that in, in that camp. Um, so the way I think about it is along the traditional lines, I think there's other things that you can bring into it that maybe make sense of some of the growth elements in the, in the value context. So I talk about things like margin of safety and people talk about that again, in terms of price, again, market price is somewhat different than your intrinsic value that gives you a margin of safety. But you could also say that there's a margin of safety in things like domain expertise where, like if you're a doctor, you're looking at biotech stocks or drug discovery stocks, things like that, you might have a margin of safety by way of your domain expertise. So that would allow you to have a better view or, or to have, again, a differentiated view to the market. Um, other things I think kind of get, get overlooked, um, and one that's really important to me is alignment. So alignment of interests. And throughout the financial system, you have a number of different intermediaries, brokers, agents, things like that. And just kind of knowing who's got skin in the game and why, you know, what, what they're what their role is, why that role might dictate their actions and how, you know, how they are aligned or misaligned with you, I think is a really important part of the value equation as well. That kind of goes overlooked. Um, other things you talk about, volatility and risk, the difference between those two. Um, and then not feeling the need to act, I think is a big one as well. I think that if you watch CNBC or Bloomberg television or any of those things, like there's always something trading and like there's always mm -hmm. you gotta do something and there's always the blah, blah, blah. What are you doing about that? What are you doing about that? You don't have to do anything. Um, there's a lot of, most of the time not doing something is usually the best course of action. And especially if you don't feel like you've got enough information or if something is novel, um, or I point this out in the blog too, like the, the harder it is for you to explain something, either in your own words or just in general, um, probably less you understand about it and the more you should either spend more time, the more time you should spend on it, or maybe it's just not a fit for what you're up to. And you should be cognizant of that. I think that's part of value as well. Just sort of knowing, knowing what you can and cannot do or where you should and should not play. So, you know, for me, it's like, I've never played well in technology stocks or biotech stocks. It's not a language that I speak. So for me to 
pitch something like that, you know, I'd be reading off a script and, and talking about a lot of chemistry that I just don't have expertise in. Um, so I think that's important. Um, and then doing the work. I just want to mention that as well, where there's a lot of people that just kind of look at something and take it as a given where, you know, you don't go deeper into why is this occurring? Um, I think things that we've talked about amongst the three of us, you know, things like a dividend yield, especially now when things might be dislocated, like people will talk about, wow, this thing's got like a huge dividend yield or this bond is trading at this really wild yield of maturity. And they kind of leave it at that. They don't look at the underlying situation and say, well, that dividend might get cut. So the reason that it's trading at this high level is if something doesn't make sense here and it's more likely the dividend's going to get cut or if something's trading at a really high yield of maturity, chances are it's not going to yield par at maturity, but there's going to be some sort of event that occurs. So that's kind of the basics of doing more. Are you more. saying there's no guarantees in the market? Correct. There's no guarantees. But um, you know, just, just looking beyond those first order effects and just doing the next level of work and understanding you know, what's going on um, and, and why. But the what is less important than the why, usually, I think, in value investing. Um, yeah, I and mean, those are kind of the, the short strokes. I think that the rest of it's probably similar to other people's view. Um, but guide me, Max, where do you want to go? Yeah, there's an interesting spin that you took on this article you wrote that a lot of value investing is typically put out there in terms of numbers. You're looking at numbers. You're comparing, okay, this number to this number. If I could buy a dollar for a quarter, that's a no-brainer, right? What you might not know is that there's actually $2 of risk behind that dollar that is overhead that you don't see. So when you're spending that quarter, you're actually getting a dollar positive and then $2 negative. So you're losing a dollar. It's not a good trade or an investment. Um, and, and I love the point that you bring in about personal experience, whether it's your expertise or the way you are looking at the technicals, the uh, financial data, the fundamentals of a company. You ha every single person investing has their own personal experience with that investment, whether it depends on their uh, industry that they're in, like you said, doctors and getting into biotech stocks can kind of make sense. And you don't do biotech stocks personally because you don't speak the language. You don't know what you're talking about. So there's a lot more risk. So value investing looks simple on paper as if it's here's a quarter, here's a dollar. But most people don't, I wouldn't say most people, there's a lot of people in the industry who respect risk properly. But there's a lot of investors and traders that I've seen, at least personally, I think you have as well, who don't respect risk. They don't consider all of the risks that's attached to that dollar. Um, Seth, you have laid out the examples in the blog post for anybody who hasn't read that. Just read there. We're not going to go through everything word for word for you. But John, what are some other ways that value investing plays into this risk or this unknown that is behind the value that you think you're receiving? Usually in, in, the, in the classical sense too, you're looking for things that are beat up or it's usually things that aren't flashy. So it's, I think your distressed debt is probably like the most value of value investing for the most part. And not to say that there isn't still risk of loss there because there certainly is, but um, you know, it's usually things that aren't flashy. So the, the, the risk is less, the risk is somewhat diminished because it's things that people are just dismissing out of hand. Like, wow, that's an industry that's just not, not going to show up in the wall street journal. You know, it's not a deal that I'm going to do or trading or do mm -hmm. like, wow, you know, you're growing the next Airbnb or the next thing that like sort of flashy. So it's, it's stuff that's beat up and it's, it's um, the things that take, I wouldn't say monotony, but it's stuff that you're going to work on and you're not going to be like, you know, it's not, 
life changing, right? Yeah. Um, so there's that. There's a sort of a sense of washout. You know, things things that are beat up. Um, trying to think of some good examples today. You know, I mean, right now, kind of everything's beat up. But historically, there's always been a cycle in like paper and packaging. There's been metals and mining cycles. Um, you know, things that people just dislike because there's not a lot of passion on the street for following those things, right? Like it's not exciting to talk about coal for the most part or yeah. um, sometimes machinery or, um, yeah, I mean, it's just easier to follow the herd and just kind of be like, oh, well, yeah, that's, that got beat up. I'm going to go over here and try to find the next thing that's not. Um, and I think, we, you know, we talked about this a little bit too. Um, it's okay to lose and like you should be, I mean, you're not going to win all the time, but I think in the value mentality, losing for the reasons that you knew could produce a loss is, is, is okay. I mean, within reason, right? So like if you're doing, you're doing your research and, and there's the things that you can know and the things that you can't know. Um, so as you're doing your research, I guess taking another tact at that is like there's things that can be known and things that maybe can't be known. So and there's things that you can know and there's some things that other people can know. Right? And maybe you can't know those things. <clears throat> Either because information is not available to you or like we're talking about, you don't speak that language. So for me to like, understand how that drug discovery process works i'd have to do a bunch of a bunch of digging and learning that i just don't have so I, i'm not able to know that right someone else is able to know that that's something i yeah. shouldn't step into and if somebody else is able to know it they could take the opposite side of your trade or just they'll get there first um yeah. but if there's something in general that can't be known you know like in general that's a general risk that we all take together and that can be something that you can verbalize and report and say hey you know like for instance i'm taking the risk that Oh, I don't know. Like if you're trading solar or something like the weather might turn or you're, you're trading an insurance stock, that there might be cataclysmic events that you can't, that no one can really forecast, right? It's not a matter of having this AI technology that's able to see these things. It's something that just can't be known. Um, um, so those are things that you can, you can go into an investment saying, yeah, you know, I'm willing to take that risk. I, I, here, here are the things I can't know. Am I willing to do that anyway? Right? Yeah. So how would you look at a situation right now? We're recording this during the COVID-19 lockdown. The stock market plummeted down about 30%, bounced right back up miraculously. And there's a lot of people on the street who are talking that behind the scenes, and I know you share this view too, company financials are suffering significantly. And it seems common sense in a situation like this, but the stock market isn't reflecting that. So how do you look at the value where the current stock market is or where the majority of individual stocks are? How do you look at that value and consider whether it's overvalued or uh, looking at the different risks, the risk of the known and the unknown behind the scenes that we don't really see? It's hard. I mean, I'm look, I look at it mainly from the credit market. So to see those two things have to travel together at some point. And right now the stock market's, it's forward looking to thinking about looking through this thing and discounting the potential back. And I get that. I think um, my view, I don't have a pinpointed like on a timeline, but the stock market's clearly taking a more optimistic view. You know, the market is taking a more optimistic view of recovery possibilities, the Fed's impact, whatever future, future results, all these good things. Um, whereas the credit markets are telling a much different story. Um, and that's why the Fed stepped into the credit markets, right? So you get all these programs where the Fed's buying or will buy high-grade bonds, fallen angels, yeah. doing another TALF. Um, there's things that are being, money's gone into the credit, credit markets. Um, and then there's a lot of things that are just starting to crack. So you're seeing, I think it was this week or last week, that came out that 25% of all CMBS collateralized commercial mortgage bond securities, you know, these structured products made out of uh, commercial mortgages 
I think it's 25% of all CMBS is in the special service or bucket. So that's in like the collection agent bucket, right? And that's just after April. So it's one month of payments. Oh. That they're just late. They haven't even been recorded as not made yet. They're just late. So now we're into May, what are we, May 7th? That payment wasn't made either in any of those. So those will all go into special servicing, which, you know, and more will get there. So that to me suggests that, you know, there is trouble when people aren't paying the rent because they can't or they're, you know, whatever, they're doing a rent strike. But you're seeing that. Um, you're starting to see more bankruptcies. Clearly, you know, Neiman Marcus filed today. J. Crew filed this past week. You know, there's top talks of like Gordon Taylor is going to file and they're just going to go to liquidation. And those aren't probably surprises, but there'll be more behind that. So the credit market is telling a much different story. And granted, there's other implications too. And the stock market likes inflation, right? Because prices and earnings. Um, and I guess maybe there's a view there that the more money is printed, that there is inflationary pressure where the bonds clearly don't like that. Um, so there's that too, but yeah. So I mean, when you're looking at value, how do you compare the two? If it's telling two different stories, which do you listen to? Um, me, I mean, I, I listen to the credit markets. I usually listen to the credit markets anyway. I'm just given that we're a yeah. cash flow society and that cash flows usually comes from borrowed money. Um, if there's yeah. trouble borrowing money or, or there's disruptions in that the money flows are disrupted, at some point that hits. It has to. I mean, what percentage of the economy is closed too? That's just, it's just surprising yeah. to me that the stock market can say that with where consumer spending is likely to go, um, where unemployment is likely to go. And we're, was it Cash Kari said yesterday, we're probably like 24% effective unemployment, probably. Yeah, probably, probably. And I mean, where do you, I guess, John, when you look at like that forward looking, you know, on the equity side, like the, there's kind of things that are already priced into the market. And like, is that, is the discount, like the discount rate for like future cash flows, like, are they using the right discount rate for future right. cash flows? Right. Well, that's and like not to get into policy. Like, if interest rates are like zero, <laughs> like what's the discount rate? Right. I mean, it's super low. So there's that kind of perversity too. Um, but I get it. I mean, and then I don't know. I mean, I, I get why there could be a disconnect, but just it just certainly seems like it's setting up for for more yeah. volatility, at least. And what does volatility mean in terms of value investing? How do you compare volatility to this type of risk that we've been discussing? But how does that play into value investing? So I think about volatility is just the propensity for something to move. And I know there's a lot more complexity and math, math yeah. behind it, but um, just the propensity for something to move, right? So just in general, earnings move, the market moves, the stock moves, high ball, right? So things are, things are, mm -hmm. things are going to move or change. Um, whereas risk, I think, is a crystallized loss. So risk to me is not that the thing moves in the wrong direction, but at that point, you need to trade in or trade out of it and crystallize that loss. Um, so in that respect, um, I guess the thing to think about in terms of value investing or even just investing in general is if you can't weather that volatility, your capital won't allow you to weather volatility, you should probably not be in things that could be volatile. You know, so the terms of your capital dictate the terms of what you should invest in. So I had a conversation this morning with, He's a guy who's a, he's a, he's a managing partner of a fairly large offer that focuses on bankruptcy. And we were just kind of talking about the market. And he's like, yeah, right now, you know, the world's changed. And he's like, the, you know, the $1 to $3 billion quarterly redemption hedge fund in distress. He's like, that model just doesn't work right now. He's like, his view is that that model doesn't work because mm -hmm. the volatility in, the, in those distressed assets is so high, or the price of volatility is so high that the investors will draw money out you know, at an opportune time and you will crystallize that loss. Yeah. So then can volatility 
you say that it's different than risk. I, in short-term trading, see it as not one and the same, but connected in a sense that technical volatility can lead to mental risk and that mental risk affects your personal experience of an investment when you're looking to uh, either trade or looking at value investing from, um, from the standpoint, but like what you're just describing, investors can pull their money if volatility is too high because then you're forced to crystallize risk when you're not, when the timing is not right. So there's so many cogs to this system that are moving. Where can you ever see the true value if 90% of what's going on is just dark matter behind the scenes? Um, that's, that's the, your terms of capital, right? So then that, and then, um, you know, everyone's like, Hey, I want to invest like Buffett. So they all do the math. I'm like, Oh, this company's beat up. But like the, the thing that, and some people get this and some people don't, but the thing that Buffett has that no one else has is, is money that has no, there's no term on it. You know, it doesn't have quarterly money. It doesn't have annual money. It's not a private equity fund that has three, four investment year, years and then a pace period. It's like infinite, right? I mean, in a sense, it's infinite. And then he's got this cash machine that actually builds more behind it. So not only do you have an infinite timeline, but you've got more that's generated that you can put more into it. And that's like the secret sauce he has. I mean, he's brilliant, right? I mean, clearly his track record's amazing, but I think it's hard and you can't invest like someone unless your terms of capital are the same. So for him, he can weather any, in a sense, he could take an infinite amount of ball because there's really never a time where he's going to have to crystallize that loss. Hmm. Right. Um, yeah. If you're in a quarterly vehicle or you know, something with a much smaller, you know, people talk about ETFs, they talk about mutual funds that have even different terms. Um, you know, how you can invest in, how you can invest in those vehicles into something that's, really liquid, like a, like bank debt. There was a lot of, a lot of those products that have been, have been created to invest in things that are inherently less liquid than the underlying funds. Um, that's where the volatility risk mismatch gets screwed. Okay. And inherently, like you mentioned, when things are down, that's when people are going to get emotional and want to pull money out. And when you're going to be like, no, we should actually, you should actually give me more money. And they will, <laughs> which kind of comes back to my friend's comment. He's like, that's why that, that quarterly vehicle investing in these things that get, more volatile, you know, it doesn't work. It's just when you don't want them to, they will. And, you know, and things just never match up that way. Yeah. So then could you just look from a value investment standpoint that if you choose to invest in assets, uh, equities, whatever, that have the least volatility, would that be greater value? Would you be getting more value out of it if volatility is less and you're less at risk of quarterly, annual crystallization of your risk. Yeah. I mean, if you can find things that have only upside, right. I mean, any, any good. And if you look at like, like a classic value pitch, will always have that, right. Like even this could happen and I'll get this or then there's that. Like you tell the people that listen to all these things and like you hear it like, Oh, I know where you're going to go with this one. Right. Um, yeah. But if you, if you can invest with only upside, that's fantastic. Right. Or if you, you can only, if, I mean, you, you, there's volat- there's times when you want to, you, I generally would want to be long volatility. I guess that's, that's just my view. Um, I'd rather never be short volatility. Um, okay. Just in general. I think that, not, I don't mean like the VIX per se, but I think about it having, in terms of like having more, more ways to win than lose. There's another way to put it. Yeah, and that's like what you're just saying. If you could get into an investment that doesn't have a downside. I don't, yeah. I don't think you mean that there's no chance of loss. There's no chance of risk. Yeah. Or there's no risk involved in the trader investment. I, I think you mean what I interpret from what you're saying is that 
there's more upside than downside. It's not that there's no downside. It's, it's that the net side, if you will, is up. Yeah. So that's where you know, a lot of the traditional like, liquidation analyses come into place when we talk about corporate credit, like in bankruptcies, or you know, if you're buying something at low trough earnings, low multiple, cyclically low demand, like all that stuff. Like there's, that's why you know, some people that trade commodities or those names are just extremely smart because they've traded different cycles and they, they can always, they just have that view and when things are at triple lows, right? And then there's only expansion from your earnings powers. I mean, if there's all those things go your way, right? Mm-hmm. Or anyone, any one of those goes your way and you win, but if all of them go your way, you know, you win, which is almost the inverse. Like one of the things we talk about, River Watch, and you're starting to see it now, and this has nothing to do with any, any of the reasons except for COVID, but commercial real estate was one that people have watched for a while. You had, you know, you had things trading at tightest cap rates, um, very high LTVs, and a lot of, again, leverage was back in the system at low rates, right? So yeah. if any of, those, any of those things move against you, cap rates go up, leverage comes out of the system, LTVs come down, anything you're going to lose. But all those things were kind of at their peak together going into what we're doing right now. So that yeah. to me is you know, being very short volatility because you're short movements. Those things can only move one direction. Cap rates were not going to tighten. Interest rates were not going to go, go lower. You know, all those things were going to go the necessarily move. If they move, which they do, they're all going to move in the other direction. Yeah. Um, so you're starting to see. So you need to adapt or have the ability to adapt through volatility. Whether something goes up or down, you need to adapt with it. And like you're saying, be long volatility, essentially. Yeah, I, I mean, and again, it's, it, volatility can be very mathy, and I'm not, I'm not talking about like options pricing, but just thinking about like where, when you put a position on, you know, what is, what is where are you vis-a-vis volatility and any of the underlying things? Yeah. Can you just look at past charts and see when certain cycles, I mean, the market happens in cycles. We're all familiar with that. How about value investing in terms of looking at these previous cycles and charts and just draw a line and see when you're in value and when you're out of value and invest below that line. Or when you see you're at the bottom of a cycle, you go long in that investment and that's a value investment essentially. But in a situation like COVID, you can't, there's not too many examples, at least in most people who are living today no. of our recent history that we can compare the current situation to. I don't know if there's any example. I mean, we have going back to the 1920s, but we don't have any serious examples that are within even 70% accuracy or uh, similar to what we have today. Right. And that's why I think that the... Um there's also, this gets way down the rabbit hole, but then there's the concept of like embedded volatility versus realized volatility. And again, it can get horribly mathy, but um, you know, what you're seeing versus what you could see. Mm-hmm. Um, so I what think- seeing versus what you could see, that's back to the beginning of the conversation of yeah. what you can see and what you can. Um, and and this kind of comes back to what we talked about, what you can know and what you can't know. Yeah. Um, you know there's all these different, you know, the out, the out hands are on the screen now like if you know the set of potential outcomes is like this and you can narrow it down to like this and you can be comfortable with those right even if you're going to take a loss like that's your job when you're doing the research is to like is like to reduce the number of potential outcomes like i think okay. this is what's going to happen right you're never going to get here on the one most likely um, but just to kind of reduce it down to a level of acceptableness to make a decision and maybe that you're like I'm, you know what i can't because i'm still going to be here but um 
And that's because if you can eliminate the number of possibilities of what can happen, you can better assess your investment. You could see it's easier to look at five outcomes and determine if it's too risky to get into or if the value is good or not, as opposed to 110 outcomes, it's difficult. Right. So the more, thing, the more things can happen, that will always, right? But you want to reduce that. So when, when you've got periods of high volatility, it's a view that more, a lot more things could happen, right? So right now, um, you know, the VIX was at some crazy numbers and it's come down and I haven't looked at it in a couple of weeks, but I mean, based on the conversations I've had with some you know, pretty smart people around the way, just like no one has any, I mean, no one's been like, here's the, you know, the path with some degree of certainty. Everyone's like, I have no idea. I mean, like we have no, I mean, there's some, there's ideas, but there's no, like, I mean, the, 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 the range of potential outcomes right now is huge. Yeah. Right. Which to me, like get, and when that's high, then volatility should be high, right? The ability, the propensity of things to move within that set of potentials should exist. Right. Mm -hmm. But we're here. Like, I don't, yeah. Anyway. Sorry, I don't have like math behind it. Like I could draw a model. There's yeah, no like theory though. Like you just sort of see the, like the, the I mean, yeah, I mean, here, here's, a, here's the range of potential outcomes. Um, we have a vaccine that cures this thing in like September or we already have the drug, okay? Um, we open up the economy and everyone's good because we've all actually already had it. Oh, big surprise. One side, the other side is there's no vaccine ever and like this is what we do for, you know, this is it, this is the matrix. Um, so there's like, and then there's all the things in between. There's a vaccine here where we open up, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, what is that, you know, for the economy? It's remarkable. Um, I'm surprised the stock market's not down a lot more, but there's a need to play too, right? I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's like, like you mentioned, if there's things that you can know and things that nobody can know. And we're in a situation where nobody knows 100% of the story. So when nobody knows 100% of the story, it just falls back to herd mentality. And if the herd wants the stock market to go up, it'll go up because everybody will want it to go up. Right. Self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. Colin, I know you've had a few discussions with me and I've heard you talk on the idea of value investing and expertise because you've seen some examples in the cannabis industry of this specifically. And I know from a day trader's perspective, how many people are obsessing over the idea of getting into these OTC cannabis stocks, losing a lot of money because they have no idea what's actually going on. They think that a good news report is going to make the stock go up, but it ends up resulting in the business closing. There's all sorts of crazy stuff that goes on. If you want to give uh, some of your view of that. Absolutely. Um, and for those of people that, that want to trade short term, or actually medium term in, uh, in equities in cannabis space. Um, my, my, my general advice is like, maybe don't, um, <laughs> and, or, um, you know, John's point, do your research, do your level layers of research. And, um, if it aligns then, um, with you and your knowledge base and your background, and your expertise, um, then it, this may be for you. Uh, so like one of the things that we saw, um, a lot of the Canadian licensed producers that were the first publicly traded, um, vehicles on usually on the CS, CSE, um, the TSX kind of kicked them off, but they're usually on the CSE. 
they would um, have all these uh, press releases about how many square feet of you know cultivation capacity they would have, and the market started to correlate those um, you know capacity numbers with like future dollars and would treat the equities that way. And so we saw all these companies like ramping up into hundreds of millions into the billions of market cap. And um, unfortunately, there was no real expertise that was being put into the, the kind of um, the volume drivers of those equities. And so what we ended up with are there's a total addressable market in Canada of about $18 billion of top line revenue and the like top whatever can Canadian cannabis companies have like a $28 billion market cap. And um, typically in the industry, like privately, even privately held cannabis companies trade at like one to three X market cap mm-hmm. for private where you're going to pay like, so you have like liquidity discounts and, and fun things like that. So, you know, to me, like, I would expect most of the Canadian LPs to lose about half their market cap over the next two years. Wow. Um, and of course the U S um, players um, as well as some of the ancillary um, stocks. So like the cultivation supply companies like GrowGen, and you've got Kush for packaging and like, all, you know, all these other ones, data providers and things like that. Um, the, the, cannabis companies that are U.S. based are great because they have a larger total addressable market in the future. However, they should be inelastic with a lot of other, um, a lot of other things in the market, but they're not being treated that way. And so you can kind of do your research and you can say, okay, these should be the key drivers. And this is, you know, they're only like, I've narrowed it down like John's scenario, right? There were 10 outcomes. I've narrowed it down. There are only three outcomes. This is great. And then all of a sudden you get outcome number seven and you're like, what the, <laughs> happened. Yeah. Um, and part of it's just there's um, there's an inefficiency in knowledge and information, right? In that in that part of the market, and there's even uh, an inefficiency in expertise um, in the people that drive like larger blocks of volume. So even like institutional buyers. Um, that usually drive like massive amounts of volume that you can ride, right? Like they don't have the expertise levels necessarily to really be doing what they're doing. Hmm. And they're hmm. taking, they're taking the stocks along with them. Whew, that's scary. Sounds yeah. scary. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. Exciting. That's being long volatility for sure. As John was talking about, um, and that inefficiency point you made, I think is a huge factor of this value investing topic of looking at efficiencies and inefficiencies in different industries, as well as your own personal expertise. Um, like you're saying, the people who are making the movement happen in these companies and these equities don't even have the expertise required to move it in the proper direction. So how can you bet your money from a value perspective in a, in an industry like that. And there's cannabis is a, it stands out as a current industry that's more unknown than others for sure. Yeah. But that's only because 
there's a lot of people who aren't in the industry right now. It's a very small industry, but how many people listening to this podcast are experts of the coal industry? And so it's the same thing, but you're throwing your money into coal mining companies because you read some news headline that their quarterly, their quarter one earnings were positive. They beat expectations and you throw your money in it thinking that it's a good value right now because somebody on wall street, some random person on wall street said that it's 20% undervalued currently, but you're not experienced in it. So the value is not there. The risk is too high. There's too much downside to the upside. So value investing is a lot more than just the numbers on paper. It's a lot more than just buying a dollar for a quarter because you never know the strings attached to that dollar. You have anything, any uh, last points? Um, Yeah. As an example here, cannabis might be just too sexy to be a value pick, right? Like John said, like you want to go for just like the, the, you know, the, they almost like a little boring, right? The blue, you know, like these, these um, certain ones. And, and that's, you know, that's the thing. And and even to the point of like, for me, like being able to buy a dollar for 25 cents and have everything else remain constant, like maybe that's too sexy to be considered value investing. It might be a little narrower than that, right? We might be buying 65 cents for 25 cents. And hopefully like it's in the same currency. We don't have foreign exchange rate. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that pretty much exhausts the preliminary conversation on value investing. If you haven't read the full blog post that John put together, go to our website at inlighttrading.com and you will find the blog on there among a lot more glorious stuff in the stock trading and investing space. Thank you for listening to the InLight podcast. Again, my name is Max. Uh, This is John and Colin joining me from the InLight team. We also are waving at the screen because we're recording this on video too. If you want to, for some odd reason, play a YouTube video on your drive to work once this lockdown is over, be a crazy person like that and head over to our YouTube and watch the podcast there. Or if you just want to see what all of our faces look like, because there's a lot of people out there putting podcasts that we all subscribe to the messages they're saying, and we've never even seen these people's faces. It's a ridiculous concept right now. Anyways, thank you for listening. And we will see you next week on the online podcast.